1: Um, It shall come to pass. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Prophesying, as you see in this case, is not limited to thus saith the Lord. We are seeing that there are many various forms of prophecy. So I want you to see in verse 18, notice it says... And they shall prophesy. Let's go to Joel and look at Joel chapter 2. And looking at Joel chapter 2, in that same verse, it does not say, and they shall prophesy. Notice, they shall prophesy was added by Peter on the day of Pentecost. Can you say that in Joel chapter 2, looking at verse 28, 29, this is verse 29 we're referring to in Joel chapter 2? Look, yes. Notice it just says, on my servants and upon my handmaidens in those days I will pour out my spirit. But notice it doesn't say, and they shall prophesy, does it? No, No, that's missing, isn't it? Now let's go back over to the book of Acts. And let's see in Acts chapter two, in Acts chapter two, it says, um, and they shall prophesy. So is that spiritually significant? Yes or no? Yes. Yes, because why? Because Peter added it, didn't he? He added it, and he added it because it has to do with the attributes of the Holy Spirit that one receives when one's baptized in the Spirit. So the defining characteristic of being baptized in the Spirit, according to Joel's prophecy of what um, Peter said on the day of Pentecost, is that there will be the spirit of prophecy poured out upon all flesh and that the spirit of prophecy would be the primary characteristic of baptism in the spirit. Are you with me? If you are, say amen. Amen. All right, beloved saints. So now what we need to see, and this is so very important. I'm going to share with you Um, from a very historic uh, perspective. I want us to see what does it mean, the spirit of prophecy? What does this actually mean? Let's go for a minute to Revelation chapter 19, verse 10. Revelation chapter 19, verse 10. And we see in Revelation 19, 10, the Bible tells us, the last line, the last line says, For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Can you say that? For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Okay. Now, where do we get that? Doesn't that sound, when you say the spirit of prophecy, does that make it sound like it's, doesn't that have a little sense to it of being um, a tad dangerous? Does it sound a tad dangerous theologically? Anybody want to make a comment on that? Does it sound a tad dangerous? Yes? Well,
0: theologically, it may, because
1: you're giving Jesus the, as a prophet. Okay, that's a good idea. Okay, yes. But what about the spirit of prophecy? Have you ever heard that before? Have you heard that term before? Is that a classical term that is used? Have we ever heard that term before besides right now? Anybody ever heard that term before? No. It is not a common term. When you receive the baptism in the Holy Spirit, the the normal term is that you receive the baptism in the Spirit, but you don't say you've received the Spirit of prophecy. All right? Does that sound, doesn't that sound a bit strange? Yes or no? Okay? We need to start having our antlers up when things sound strange. Okay? We need to learn how to ask questions because we're studying Torah. Okay. So the skill here is going to be why doesn't that sound a little strange? And it does. All right. So we're going to solve the problem. And we're going to tell you why, because the normal generic use of the scripture for being filled with the spirit is usually being filled with power being filled with the spirit being endued with power from on high. But you never hear of being filled with the spirit of prophecy. Do you? Isn't that the only place? It's actually the only place in the Bible that says the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. That's the only place in the entire Bible that the spirit of prophecy is used. However, In the first century, and why is the first century important for us to look at? Who lived in the first century? Okay, tell me what the first century was. Um, Somebody want to tell me what was the first century? Yes. Okay, first century Jewish Palestine. That was the name of Israel in the first century. Okay, say it with me. First century Jewish Palestine. First century Jewish Palestine. It was not renamed Israel again until 1948. Okay, got that? Okay, first century Jewish Palestine. All right, you have a very complicated culture. Okay, what what do you know that is in the culture of first century Jewish Palestine? Somebody? Okay, Pharisees, what else? Sages, what else? Roman occupation. Okay, you have a pluralistic Judaism. Okay, so many people refer to first-century Jewish Palestine as first-century um, first Jewish Palestine, but the people of the first century, the Jews of the first century. Um, there's, there's many references as to first-century, instead of saying first-century Judaism, it's referred to as first-century Judaisms, because there is so much plurality in the culture. Do you all understand? And division among the people and various sects of way of interpreting scripture and interpreting Torah. Do you all understand what I'm talking about? I'm going in another little bit of direction. Okay, I'm gonna take you to Jesus of Nazareth in his historic setting for a moment. Okay, how many of you would like to know that? (laughs) Okay, okay. Jesus of Nazareth in his first century historic setting. All right, the The population of the Jews who lived in the first century, that lived in first century Jewish Palestine, the educational system is not like the educational system today. Okay, the educational system was that everyone went to school to learn Torah. Okay, they didn't go to school to learn mathematics, to learn social science or whatever. And the average age of education for a child in the first century was Bet safer, which was from ages 5 to 12. Okay, after 12, their education was done. And from 5 to 12, they would learn Hebrew alphabet, and they would learn from 5 to 12 to memorize all five books of the Torah, which is. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They didn't have textbooks. Okay, they memorized. And they learned memorization through repetition. Can you say that? Learned memorization through repetition. So now you have a first century culture that is what is called a Torah-centric culture. Can you say that? A Torah-centric culture. So that meant that everything in the culture among the Jews within their their own context was Torah-oriented. Do you all see that? The study of Torah, the lifestyle of Torah. Okay, so where am I going with this? Synagogue life was a primary portion of their existence. In every village, in a kosher village, in even non-kosher villages, the lives of the Jews revolved around their life in the synagogue okay why am i saying that i'm saying that because most Jews spoke aramaic aramaic is a dialect it's a dialect of hebrew galilean aramaic is what jesus spoke and the disciples Do you all understand? Yes. Where are you going with this, Dr. Carell? Okay, in the synagogue, the language was Hebrew. So this means if you know just a little bit of Hebrew to get by, because most of the education is done in Hebrew, but maybe if you did not go up from age 12 because you had to be invited to the next level of study. The next level of study is from 12 to 15. And you're only allowed to go to twelve to fifteen if you're invited. That means you have to be uh, examined by the rabbis, and they say, "Well, this is a child prodigy. You know how to ask questions well. You know how to begin an argument, an argumentative way of thinking. Argument. We're not talking about argument in a battle. We're talking about litigation. Okay. You, you, your development of your mind." seems to be uh, have the ability to solve problems in the Torah, to be able to solve matters of grammar or solve questions. And so if that ability is shown in a child, they are invited to go up to ages 12 to 15, which is Beit Midrash. Then from Beit Midrash, there is the highest level of learning where the all the oral Torah, which is the Sayings of the Fathers, which is a huge compilation of tremendous rabbinic texts, and the hotbed of Torah, oral Torah, was Galilee. All right, then if you seem to be extremely, extremely well-to-do student, you go to Beit Midrash. Beit Midrash is from 15 to 30. Okay, that's, excuse me, Bait Talmud. So you have Beit Sefer, say it, Beit Sefer, Sefer, Bait Midrash, Bait Midrash. and Beit Talmud. Talmud. Okay, if you're a Beit Talmud, you are now on the level, you are on a level to be able to debate with other Pharisees, you are an, on a level to be able to debate with lawyers. And you are on a level to be able to teach and, and actually litigate Jewish law. Do you all understand? Yes. Okay. And this is where you can be called rabbi. Do you all understand it? All right. Now, why am I saying all this? Because if you go to synagogue in the first century, you only speak Aramaic. And everything is being taught in Hebrew. You're going to need an interpreter, aren't you? And if you want to study the Torah in a more excellent way, you're going to need an interpreter. So in the synagogue for every Sabbath, in every village, and I want you to understand when we start to study Luke, Luke is giving this presentation of Jesus always frequenting the synagogue constantly because he was a kosher Jew. We cannot say... There's nothing worse than reading in a book. He must have gone to synagogue. Wait a minute. Where did you get that? He must have gone to synagogue. He must have observed the Jewish feasts. Wait a minute. He's a Jew. He's a rabbi. He's a rabbi of rabbis. What do you mean he must have gone to synagogue? Uh, Didn't you read the Bible? Of course he went to synagogue, especially the gospel according to Luke, according to Matthew. All you see is that he's preaching in the synagogues until he begins to preach in the open air. Do you all follow me? Say a case of great mistaken identity. Okay. All right. So where are you going with this, Dr. Crowell? In the synagogues, the maturganim, who was the interpreter, would constantly interpret The Hebrew scriptures translate them into Aramaic, but the translations were interpretations. And the title for the Spirit of God was the Spirit of Prophecy in Aramaic. Do you all get it? So the Spirit of Prophecy is a title for the Spirit of God that is specifically given to us in the Aramaic translations of the Hebrew Scriptures. So the question arises, why? Okay, I'm going to take you to another level of Torah learning, first century. Would you like to go there? Okay, how many of you want to learn a little bit about Jesus the rabbi? Just a little bit. Okay, don't worry. We're going to go there soon, okay? Jesus the rabbi. I'll I'll just give you a little tidbit here, okay? In the first century... There is a concept of learning Torah called Qumroth. Can you say that? Qumroth. Okay. Qumroth is a very strict version of teaching Torah. Okay? A strict version. And there is a concept called weightier versus lighter. Say it. Weightier versus lighter. What do you think that means, weightier versus lighter? It means that there are some commandments that are very weighty. And there are some commandments that are lighter. And there are some some areas of the Torah that are extremely weighty. And there are other areas of the Torah that are much lighter. Do you all see that? So if you put the emphasis on something waiting when it's light, like Jesus when he condemned the Pharisees. He said, you, you strain at a gnat and you swallow a camel. Okay, what did he mean by that? That's a rabbinic saying. You strain at a gnat and swallow a camel, that's rabbinic exaggeration. That's how the rabbis taught. Okay, that actually is a very important identifying tool. That saying is an identifying tool. It teaches us that Jesus is a classic master of rabbis. Do you all understand? You strain in a gnat and you swallow a camel. A camel is the most unkosher animal. Okay, it's an unclean animal in in the concept of what's kosher, what's not kosher. So Jesus is exaggerating to them. You're straining at a gnat and you're swallowing a camel. That was the hugest insult you could tell anybody. Swallowing a camel? Telling a Pharisee he swallows a camel? That's the most unclean thing in the world. And you're swallowing an entire camel? That means you're really unclean. Okay, that means you're contaminated. Okay, you're ritually unpure at this point. You strain at a gnat? What does that mean? Because the Pharisees would have little cups. Anybody got a cup here? Have a little cup? There's a cup right here. Okay, got this little cup here. Pharisees would have a cup. And they used to put little nets over them so that no gnats could touch them. So they wouldn't become ritually impure. So Jesus is saying, you're straining at a gnat and you're swallowing a camel. You are so ritually unclean because you don't really know what constitutes clean in the sight of God. How could he say that to a Pharisee unless he had the level of Torah learning to be able to litigate in that manner? Are you with me? All right, so Dr. Kron, what do you mean about building this fence? Okay, Kum wrote the stricter version of Torah. Also, when commandments are said, Jews serve God by obedience to mitzvahs. Mitzvahs are commandments. Say it with me. Obedience to mitzvahs. Okay, in the diaspora, when they were taken out of Israel and brought to Babylon. How can you serve God? There's no more temple. Okay, how, how do they have any connection? Because the, the word mitzvah, which means commandment, is taken from this word tzav, but there is a, an Aramaic word that is similar to tzav. It's sabaha. Can you say that with me? Tzavaha. Tzavah. And that means connection. All right, set with me. It means connection. So Jews in the first century connected to God through obedience to the mitzvahs. So is that important? Yes. All right. So to a Jew, if you are going to obey a commandment, to obey a commandment, you have to know how, don't you? Yes. What if you thought you were obeying a commandment and did it wrong? If this is your only connection to God, don't you want to do it perfect? Yes. All right, so what they would do is there's a concept that the rabbis developed called building a fence around the commandments. Say it. Say, building building a fence around the Torah. Okay, to build a fence meant that the fence was that you set your life up. And you set yourself up so that you will never go into the sin of breaking that commandment by other little commandments that protect you from entering into that commandment. Okay, let's go to Matthew chapter five. I'm going way off the track, but I'll just go there. I'm just gonna follow the Holy Spirit on this one. Okay, Matthew chapter five, verse 21. I want you to see how Jesus is building a fence. Okay, would you like to see Jesus build a fence? Okay, he's a real carpenter, but maybe not just the only the way that you think he is. Okay, he's going to build a fence. All right, let's look. You have heard that it was said of old time, you shall not kill. Where did we hear that? Where did we hear you shall not kill? Which commandment is it? Fifth commandment, you shall not kill correct? Yes. Is that an important commandment or not? Yes. yes. You shall not kill. It's one of the 10, isn't it? Yes. All right. So watch Jesus build the fence. You said, you have heard that it was said of them of old time, you shall not kill. And whoever shall kill shall be what? In danger of the judgment. Watch this. But I say to you, whoever is angry at his brother without a cause is in danger of the judgment. You know what he's doing? He's building a fence because the road to murder is anger. So the thing you have to do so that you'll never fall into anger is to build a fence, never fall into murder, is to build a fence. And the way you're going to start building the fence is that you never get angry without a cause because if you do, you're going to be in danger of the judgment. Is that strict or lenient? Strict, strict or lenient? Strict. Strict or lenient? Strict. strict, or lenient? strict. Strict or lenient? Strict. Hmm. I thought you served a Jesus that didn't really care too much about things like that. Okay. We have a contradiction. Okay. In the Jesus... That is being presented to us. Because why? We have gentilized Jesus. And we have made Jesus a Gentile. And he is not a Gentile. When he came to earth, he didn't come to earth to be a Gentile, he came to earth to be a Jewish rabbi. Hello, somebody. Are you with me? There's a difference between being a renegade and a radical. Jesus was not a renegade, but Jesus was a radical, okay? He knew the Torah perfect. There has never been a Torah teacher that could teach Torah like Jesus. Hallelujah. He taught Torah so well that we all fell in love with Torah and we are Gentiles. Hello, somebody. Okay. Whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of judgment. But I say to you, whoever is angry at his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, you fool, shall be in danger of the council. And whosoever shall say, you fool, shall be in danger of what? Hell, hmm. Building a fence, correct? Yes. Okay. Now, with that concept, in order to perform a commandment is very, very important. So while they are in synagogue, are these synagogue Jews? Absolutely. Everything Jesus is going to teach is Torah. He is not going to teach anything outside of Torah. All of the parables, these are called mashalim. Can you say it with me? Mashalim. Okay. A mashal is a comparison. Rabbis in the first century who were masters of the arts, that meant a Torah scholar. Rabbis who were masters of the arts always used parables. Okay, the rabbinic literature of the Torah Sheba Alpe has more than 4,000 parables. Jesus coined his own types of parables. Every one of his parables started the same. What is the kingdom of heaven like? Okay? Parable means comparison. Can you say that? Parable means comparison. So he's going to show us what the kingdom of heaven is like. Now, we just shared with you earlier that they were building a fence building a fence, one of the ways that a fence would be built around a commandment is sometimes. Names would be changed so that the fence around not taking the Lord's name in vain, a fence would be built around it by changing God's name and using instead a euphemistic phrase. So for example, The kingdom of heaven, normally quoted as the kingdom of God, in order not to desecrate the name of God, the term kingdom of heaven was coined. Do you see that? The kingdom of heaven is a rabbinic, it's a rabbinic concept. So this puts Jesus in the world of the rabbis. Okay, and the kingdom of heaven is a very orthodox, first century kosher term, and it was developed to build a fence around God's name. Can you say that with me? To build a fence around God's name. So there will be never an occasion of saying, um, you said the name of God frivolously, or you said the name of God without respect. Even today, the name of God is said Hashem, meaning the name. And if ever you hear like an Orthodox Jew refer to the Lord, they will never say El Shaddai. They will say El Shakai or something named that will never take uh, never take God's name and lower it down to a common level. Okay, why am I saying that? Because the sages of the Aramaic Targums had that same concept of building a fence around the term, the spirit of the Lord. Lest the word Adonai be desecrated. The person who said it may say it with disrespect. The person who said it may not be pronouncing it correctly. And so they built a fence. How was the fence built? The sages changed the name in the translation of the Aramaic Targums to instead of saying the spirit of the Lord, they would say the spirit of prophecy. Do you see that? Do you see that? All right. Are we getting somewhere tonight? Are we learning something? If we're learning, can we say amen? Okay, very good. So the spirit of prophecy. Now I'm going to take you a little further. And Raquel's going to put up some incredible little notes for you. Okay. The, The sages were so articulate when they translated the various texts in the Old Testament, Hebrew scriptures, that when they translated them, they actually articulated for us in a certain verse if the spirit of prophecy is being employed or something prophetic is being employed they would use the term the spirit of prophecy but if they did not see the spirit of prophecy or something prophetic they would and they saw only power or something a manifestation of God's power. They would change it to the spirit of power. So you have the spirit of prophecy and you have the spirit of power that are euphemistically used in the Aramaic Targums. Why is that important? Because the sages are actually showing us that in certain places that we would never think are prophetic are actually very prophetic. And they're opening the doors for us to understand the depths of prophecy because in every place where they change the name the Spirit of the Lord and they see an act of prophecy being performed... Because remember, prophecy is not just saying, thus saith the Lord. But when they perceive something to be of the nature of prophecy, they actually change it from the spirit of the Lord to the spirit of prophecy. So if we study these various occasions where the sages have changed it to the spirit of prophecy, they are identifying prophetic acts. Turn to your neighbor and say, that's incredible. that's incredible. So that means now you have an array through the scripture of various texts that are actually recorded as prophetic. And it teaches us about prophecy. Let me just show you these. Okay. Notice. Uh, this is a document written. This is probably the best document I've ever seen in my life on the prophetic. Okay, Targum Onkelos. Can you say that? Okay, there's several Targums, and eventually, sometime in this class, we will just have a class on Targums, okay? But we're not there yet, but we will. How many of you would like to do that? Okay, we're not there yet, But we're going there, okay? We're we're navigating toward that. All right. Targum onkelos is a classic targum. When we say targum, what do we mean? Somebody tell me what that means. What's a targum? Yes, Michael? Excellent. An Aramaic interpretation of the Hebrew scriptures. Now, the sages did not translate. They interpreted That's a difference. What's the difference between translating something and interpreting it? Interpreting
0: from the Spirit of God and translating Uh, is what you think it's saying.
1: Excellent. So, and it's not just only writing down word for word, but it's also adding commentary. So, the best commentaries on the Hebrew Scriptures are these Aramaic Targums. Do y'all understand? Because the sages translated them. They are the ones who interpreted them. And look what they've already done for us. They've identified all these passages in the scripture where the spirit of power is instead of the spirit of the Lord, it's changed to the spirit of power. So that when we look at it, we can say, wow, that is the spirit, the power of God moving through God, okay? And they changed the name of the spirit of the of the Lord to the spirit of prophecy in various portions so that we can understand the components of prophecy, the attributes of prophecy, because every time they change it, they've already identified for us a specific prophetic gift, manifestation, or action that we may not have been aware of previously. Are you with me? So it's teaching us what is prophecy and what are the attributes of prophecy. The sages themselves are identifying them for us in the changing, these euphemistic names they're giving to God. Do you see this? Wow, this is incredible, isn't it? All right. So here we see Targum Onkelos, and I'm not going to just go into detail about that. But Targum Onkelos, Onkelos translated the entire Torah into various it, he translated into Aramaic, okay? and he is famous for using the spirit, the Spirit of the Lord transferring it to the spirit of prophecy or the Spirit of God. Let's look. notice he's referring to Targum Genesis 4138. Joseph has a what? Joseph has a what? A prophetic spirit. A prophetic spirit. Say it. A spirit. Okay, because he can interpret Pharaoh's dreams. What does that teach us? Does that teach you anything? It teaches you that the spirit of prophecy is not just saying, thus saith the Lord. That the spirit of prophecy also includes interpreting dreams, doesn't it? The Spirit of Prophecy includes dreaming, because we saw that in Acts, and the Spirit of Prophecy also includes interpreting dreams, doesn't it? Yes. All right. Notice that this is a very detailed paper. All right. Because he can interpret Pharaoh's dreams, also Schaefer, who is a tremendous scholar, recognizes that in three occurrences out of eight, the relation to prophecy is not obvious. So the sages have given to us ambiguous texts that we could never see prophecy operating in, that they are actually revealing to us prophecy is happening so that we can get the details of how to operate in prophecy and what prophecy actually is so that those that are baptized in the spirit can understand the new Testament scriptures greater than we ever have before. Are you with me? If you are, say amen. All right. So let us look, notice, notice that they are notice this last line. In other words, the term prophetic spirit designates a narrowly defined specific content that the spirit sent by God to humans conveying prophetic gifts. So that means when we see the Targum has translated from the spirit of the Lord to the spirit of prophecy, In that particular targum, we are learning what prophetic gifts are. We're learning how the attributes of prophecy operate. Are you getting this? That we are learning about the depths of prophecy And we are becoming anointed to operate in those gifts because we're not going to go forth and minister in zeal without knowledge. Now we're going to be able to understand the depths of prophecy, the depths of revelation, the depths of the spirit of God, like we have never understood before. Are you with me? If you are, say amen. Okay, so let's look at some of these instances. Let's go to Genesis 41, verse 38. And I think we have another reference from the, yes, excellent. Yes, that's a good one. Okay, this is just a chart that was made. Genesis chapter 41, verse 38. And we can look at the other, the other one also, just really quickly, just to show the students. Yes, okay, very good. Genesis 41, verse 38. Uh, would you read that for us, Philip? Pharaoh
0: said unto the servants, can we find such a one as this is, a man in whom the spirit of God is?
1: Okay. Can we find such a one in whom the spirit of God is? Translated from the Hebrew to the Aramaic Targum is, can we find such a one in whom is the spirit of prophecy from before the Lord? That's incredible. He is telling us that Joseph was operating in the spirit of prophecy when Joseph interpreted the dreams. He is telling us that when not only when Joseph interpreted the dreams, but what else did Joseph do? Let's go to Genesis chapter 38, uh, 41 verse 38. What else did Joseph do? Joseph didn't just interpret the dream. What did he do? He gave Pharaoh instruction, didn't he? on how to to implement what he was shown by God, didn't he? So the spirit of prophecy is not just revelation, but the spirit of prophecy is also implementation. Put your hands up right now and say, Lord, I don't only want revelation. Revelation. Lord, I want implementation, to know how to inculcate what the Spirit of God shows me in my life, that I can integrate it into my life to use it for the glory of God. Are you with me, saints? If you are, say amen. Are we getting it? Okay. Now, all right. So... These are just various, we don't need to look anymore because that's going to take our head off. If we look at it, it takes us hours and hours and hours to dissect just one line of this. All right, so what does this possibly have to do with the book of Acts? It has everything to do with the book of Acts because the entire first century, viewed the Holy Spirit as the spirit of prophecy. So that means all the New Testament authors did not view the spirit of the Lord just in the context of the spirit of the Lord. That the New Testament authors viewed the, uh, the spirit of the Lord as the spirit of prophecy and the spirit of power. Are you with me? Now, I want to share with you something unusual and very powerful about the Aramaic Targums. Because why? The Aramaic Targums and the New Testament working together actually reveal, they actually interpret the Bible with messianic realities. And that is what is so important. So now, beloved saints, we are going to move just really quickly and I'm gonna teach you, let's look at the seven midot of Hillel. I'm gonna teach you about details. Okay, details are very important. Look at these seven rules, hermeneutical rules. See them up on the screen? Okay, these are seven rules. The Vah homer, the Gezra Shavah, the Binyan Ab Mikatuv Echad, the Binyan Ab mishene the u-Faret and Faret u kalal and Akhar, and Davar halamed me inyano. All right, those sound like what in the world are those seven rules? My head's gonna pop off. What are you talking about? Okay, these are rules for interpreting scripture. Seven rules for interpreting scripture. You say, okay, do I just learn that in the yeshiva? Well, I don't call Oral Roberts University a yeshiva. Okay. I I found from ORU documentation that students in a New Testament class were actually learning the seven midot of Halel. Awesome, isn't it? Okay, why? Jesus used the seven midot when he was teaching. And one of the most important midot, which we have not really gone over, is this Kelal. Look at verse number five. Kelal uferat and ferat, ferat ukelal. Say it. Kelal, kelal uferat and ferat, ferat ukelal. Say it again. Kelal uferat and ferat, ferat ukelal. Okay, what is that? General to particular. Can you say that? General to particular. That means you study Torah through particulars, through details. That means you go from general to details. And one of the ways, like I'm going to show you a detail, okay? Let's go to Genesis chapter 37. And let's look at verse 25. I'm going to show you going from general to particular. How many of you would like to learn how to get secrets out of the Bible? Say this with me, Holy Spirit, teach me how to extract revelation from the word of God so that when you speak to me, I know exactly what you're saying. Okay, would you like that? All right. All right. Notice. And they sat down to eat bread, and they lifted up their eyes, and they looked, and behold, a company of Ishmaelites came from Gilead and carry, bearing with their camels bearing spicery and balm and myrrh going down to carry it down to Egypt. Wait a minute. Since when is the Bible going to tell us what's inside a caravan, okay? Have you ever read a scripture anywhere in the Bible that's going to tell you what's inside the caravan? There, it's not the usual norm. We do have in, in Ezekiel, there are some evidences of things that were on ships, but is it really necessary to tell us when Joseph is kidnapped, Wouldn't it be more important to tell us what Joseph was saying when he's kidnapped? Wouldn't it be important to say Joseph was screaming, he was kidnapped, his brothers are turning him over to the Ishmaelites, and he was weeping and he was crying and he he was calling out to his father? No, we don't get any of that, do we? We don't get that, do we? Why is the question? We have to learn to ask questions. Say this with me. Holy Spirit, let me learn how to ask questions. Okay, so the question arises, why don't we get anything that's happening to Joseph? We don't get anything about his emotions. We don't get anything about him crying. We don't get anything about him feeling lonely, lost, abandoned, betrayed. Nothing like that is being told. Instead, the Bible's telling us what's inside the caravan. I mean, really? Is that really what the Bible is focusing on? And the answer is yes. It is. Why? Because we're going from general to particular. And in the particular is the secret. Hello? Are you with me? Say this with me. In the particular is the secret. Okay, where is the secret? Look what's inside there. Where have we heard these words before? Say it.
0: Where have we heard these words before?
1: Okay, where have you heard spicery before? Where have you heard myrrh before? And have you ever heard spicery and myrrh together? Hello, Raquel? Okay, let's go to Exodus 30. Let's see what's going on. Say this with me. General to particular. Say, Holy Spirit, teach me the secrets. Are you getting somewhere tonight? Okay, let's look at this. Verse 23 of Exodus 30. See if this sounds just a little bit familiar to what you just read. Go ahead, Philip.
0: Take thou also unto the three principal spices, a pure myrrh 500 shekels and of sweet cinnamon. How so much? Even two hundred and fifty shekels, and of sweet calamus, two hundred and fifty shekels, and of cassia five hundred shekels, after the shekel of the sanctuary, and of olive oil and hen.
1: Okay, verse twenty-five.
0: And thou shalt make it a holy oil, ointment, of ointment compound after the heart of the apocrypha
1: Okay. Now let's go back to what's going on with Joseph. Joseph is being kidnapped. The Torah is doing something very unusual. The Torah is not even telling us anything about Joseph's emotions, what the brothers are doing. All the Torah tells us is that Reuben left his place. the the Torah isn't telling us that Joseph is screaming, Joseph is crying, the Torah isn't telling us that at what time of day it was the the Torah isn't telling us what happened to Joseph's clothes, Were were they all muddy from being in that hole or what, what is going on nothing like that is being told to us, instead the Torah is telling us something that looks extremely insignificant, do we really care what's going on inside the caravan why doesn't the Torah just tell us what those Ishmaelites are doing why don't they say they're mean Ishmaelites or they're nice Ishmaelites or they're going to handle Joseph with care or they're going to handle Joseph like a slave we don't get any of that instead the Torah is focusing on something else spicery balm and myrrh you just read that about the anointing didn't you What's happening to Joseph when he goes down to Egypt? He's going down to be anointed, to be consecrated, to be separated, and the anointing's gonna preserve him. We're learning something about the anointing that we never knew before. We're learning now that when the anointing's on our life, no matter what we're going through, even if we're going through a kidnapping, even if we're going through a time when we're being hated, abandoned, thrown aside, that happens to us, the anointing is going to preserve us. The anointing is going to protect us. Do you see that? Say, I got that from Kelal Ufaret. Come on, I got that from Kelal Ufaret. If Ufaret kalal i got that from general to particular and particular to general are you with me if you are say amen, amen. amen. say teach me torah rabbi jesus amen. Come on, Jesus, teach me your Torah. Because I want to learn it. I want to learn it. I want to love you more. Come on. I want to love you more, dear Jesus. I want to serve you more, dear Jesus. I want to love you with everything in me, dear Jesus. I want to walk with you forever, dear Jesus. Come on, come on, come on, come on. Okay, we're almost out of time. So, what are we going to do now? We're going to conclude with the concept of the prophetic spirit. Spirit of prophecy from before the Lord and the spirit of power. All right. What we need to see is from Luke's gospel. Let's go in Luke's gospel. And first of all, we're going to see Luke chapter 1. We're going to see the associations always when you're studying the Messi, when the, you're studying the Targums, there is one general consensus that all scholars basically agree on, is that the, 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 the Targums in the various authors of the Targums, various sages who wrote the various Targums, um, they all in nature reveal the Messiah. They're a messianic in nature. So therefore, they're so messianic in nature that they show us depths of who the Messiah is. So we're going now to Luke chapter 1, and we're going to look just very quickly at what Luke is going to show us, the relationship in the infancy narrative to, he's writing a very unusual infancy narrative, Luke. He is not writing just baby Jesus was born and there were stars over in the sky. They were singing glory to God in the highest. And that is the story. No, he's not doing that. That is part of it, but he's not doing that fully. He has a prophetic agenda. And his prophetic agenda is to show us the concept of the Messiah associated with the Targum's view of the Holy Spirit as the spirit of prophecy. And so he's going to isolate five individuals in the infancy narrative that have a relationship with the Holy Spirit, and their relationship with the Holy Spirit is either through the spirit of power or the spirit of prophecy. Do you see that? What did we say that the sages, how they translated the spirit of the Lord? Two ways. The spirit of what? Spirit of power or, Carlene, The spirit of prophecy or the spirit of power. Okay, when the spirit of power is b- being used by the sages instead of the spirit of the Lord, the, the title is changed the spirit of power. Then this shows us the power of God in action. When the spirit of prophecy is being employed, instead, it shows us the prophetic gifts of the spirit. Are you with me? Okay, very quickly, Luke chapter 1, verse 15, the first person he's going to show us is John the Baptist. Notice, he shall be what? Filled with the Holy Ghost from his mother's womb. Spirit of prophecy upon him, isn't it? All right, let's go to the next, Luke chapter 1, verse 35. Mary, notice the words he's going to use. Verse 35, the Holy Ghost shall come upon you and the power of the highest shall overshadow you and the holy thing that shall be born of you shall be called the son of God. Where have we heard the Holy Ghost shall come upon you in another place? Let's use rule number six. Rule number six is, and it's translated like that in another place. Say it. Like that in another place. Okay, say it again. Like that in another place. Okay, we see it going back. Notice the rule number six, like that in another place. Okay, the Holy Ghost will come upon you and the power. All right, where have we seen this before? Let's go to Acts 1.8. Acts 1.8. Notice what Luke is doing. He's the author of Acts, and he's the author of his gospel. What is he showing us? He is showing us a particular work of the Spirit of God. You will receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Notice there is also an explicit expression. The Holy Ghost will come upon you. So what is he telling us? He's telling us the spirit of God when you're baptized in the spirit all these prophetic prefigurings too. The birth of Jesus are around the works of the Holy Ghost. Are you hearing this? Yeah. Go to the next one. Luke chapter 1, looking at verse 41. Notice Luke 41. It came to pass when Elizabeth heard the salutation, notice last line, Elizabeth was what? Filled with the Holy Ghost. Let's go to a fourth one. Go with me to Luke chapter 1, verse 67. Zechariah is going to prophesy. And notice, it says, and his father, Zechariah was filled with the Holy Ghost and what? Prophecy. So the spirit of prophecy or the spirit of power is on each one of them. John the Baptist the spirit of prophecy Mary the spirit of power um uh, Elizabeth the spirit of prophecy and Zechariah the spirit of prophecy are you seeing this yes. okay let's go to Simeon go with me to Luke chapter 2 notice he's he's setting up a thesis can you say this with me Luke's thesis, Luke's thesis. on the holy spirit on the holy spirit Say this with me. The gospel according to the anointing. The gospel according to the anointing. Amen. Hallelujah. Somebody should shout the victory. Okay. All right. Luke's thesis, verse 20, uh, verse 25, verse 25. Okay. Behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, the same was a just man and devout waiting for the consolation of Israel. And what? Behold. What is this? The Holy Ghost was upon him. Didn't we see the Holy Ghost shall come upon you to marry? Didn't we see the Holy Ghost shall come upon you? You shall receive power and the Holy Ghost shall come upon you. We've seen it three times now, haven't we? Okay. And it was revealed to him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death till he had seen the Lord's Christ. Okay. Okay. All of this, and he what? Came by, looking at the, verse 27, he came by the Spirit into the temple. This is the Spirit of prophecy upon him because the Spirit of prophecy is not just thus saith of the Lord. The Spirit of prophecy is being led by the Spirit. Do you all see this, saints? All right. What are we learning? We're learning about the Holy Spirit, aren't we? And we're learning that the nature of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament scriptures is either going to be the spirit of power or the spirit of prophecy. So that when we read the book of Acts, we've seen the preface to the book of Acts in Luke because he's presenting a thesis. Then when we read Acts, we're seeing the beginning of that thesis again, contextually, Continuing, so that now from that place, after being baptized in the spirit, all actions in the book of Acts that you're going to see can be categorized under the spirit of power or the spirit of prophecy. Hmm. So we're going to learn that all the actions in Acts that we didn't realize were the spirit of prophecy operating was really prophecy. And prophecy is not limited to thus saith the Lord. Prophecy is the Spirit of God in you, leading you, and guiding you. Are you with me, saints? Thank you for joining us today
0: on Day of Destiny. We invite you to our website at mydayofdestiny.com where you can easily access other podcasts and obtain your copy of Dr. Corral's latest book, Secrets of the Anointing. Also, we want to take this moment to invite you to engage in extending your hand of kindness by planting your seed or offering for multitudes that include orphans, providing water wells, providing medical supplies, clinics, feeding programs, and many other services to the suffering church and through efforts of evangelism worldwide. Just go to our website and click the donate button or text to give text HESED to 7797. That's Hesed, C-H-E-S-E-D, 27797. You are also invited to visit Dr. Michelle Corral Facebook or Instagram. We look forward to having you encounter the anointing with us on our next Day of Destiny podcast.